0: Uh, I'm excited. I've been praying and asking the Lord uh, for months now about where we should be going as a church. And uh, we are starting a new adventure this morning through the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy. And uh, these are letters. They're an epistle uh, to the young pastor, Timothy. And I want to just say right at the very beginning that these books are absolutely essential For us to understand. Uh, Number one, because it's scripture and we believe that all scripture is God breathed and it's useful for teaching and for rebuking and for encouraging us along in our lives. When we get God's word in our hearts, we grow. Amen? And so that's important. And for me, I want you to see the perspective from my view. This letter, this epistle was written to a young pastor after 20 years of his ministry. And he had been with Paul for 20 years. And for me, uh, I've been in ministry almost the exact amount of time. And so as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, okay, what's important at this point in my journey, and then for us as a church, there are issues that still challenge the church today. That we will see in First and Second Timothy, uh, things like how to deal with false doctrine and how to approach church leadership. It gives us a pattern for that, and the importance of sound doctrine, uh, sound teaching, and godly living. Proper roles of men and women in the church and in ministry, and boy, that'll be fun to get through. I promise you. Uh, how about discipline in the church, especially with church leaders that? Fall into sin uh, first Timothy talks about that how to handle your finances how to work with widows on and on and as I've been studying and reading and rereading there even though there's a lot of issues at hand there are two clearly two things clearly that rise to the top that if there was a theme or a, a combination of themes throughout the book of 1st and 2nd Timothy, they, it would really rest on two words. The first word is doctrine. Everyone say doctrine. doctrine. The word doctrine is used 21 times in the New Testament. Not a whole lot, but 15 of those times are in the pastoral epistles, which is 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Eight times in 1st Timothy. The other word is godliness. Everyone say godliness. godliness. And again, this word godliness is used 15 times in the New Testament. Again, not a whole lot. But 10, one-third of the time, I'm sorry, two-thirds of the time are found in these three epistles, First and 2 Timothy and Titus, eight times in 1 Timothy. And so if there was a theme that has emerged in my heart, and really as you read and understand First Timothy and Second Timothy as a whole, it's doctrine and godliness. And there's really a verse, two verses that kind of sum up First Timothy. And I want you to turn with me to that. It's, it's in First Timothy chapter three, uh, verses fourteen and fifteen. And look what it says here. It says, although I hope to come to you soon. I am writing you these instructions so that. The reason Paul is writing these letters to Timothy, he explains it right here, is that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. So it's godliness and the foundation of truth, God's word, and doctrine. Paul is encouraging Timothy in, his con- to, in our conduct, how to conduct ourselves, how to handle truth. And the bottom line, this is an essential epistle. Paul is encouraging Timothy as a young pastor, as a young leader, that sound doctrine and godliness are absolutely critical, that orthodoxy and practice are essential. The idea of what you think and the way you live they work together to grow, to see transformation in our lives. And so I, wanna, I want you to know that right from the beginning, there's going to be an underlying theme throughout these weeks and months ahead of doctrine and godliness, living according to God's word. Now, we're going to give you some background this morning. Uh, this is a standard Greco-Roman letter. Um, it's the, and the, really, we need to understand that first, is that it was a letter to Timothy to, for a specific pastor and for that specific church in Ephesus. And if, if we don't remember that, we will lose some of the significance and uh, of, of the, the strength of why the letter was written and, and how we can understand that. The other thing is we see right off the get-go when we read this morning that the author is identified as the Apostle Paul, a spiritual giant. Uh, there's a lot of things you could say about Paul, but it's the same Paul in Acts chapter 9 that was blinded on the road to Damascus. It's the same Paul that, uh, that one-third of the New Testament was written by. It's the same Paul whose ministry uh, takes up half of the book of Acts, and uh, we see his life laid out for us in his mission, missionary journey. We also not only see the, who, the, who wrote the book of 1 Timothy, the recipient is identified as well. Anybody want to take a wild guess? I've already kind of said it, but it was written to who? To Timothy, right? And at this point, when Timothy would have received this letter, he was 35 years old, most, be, most people believe. And he's identified in verse 2 as a child, a true son in the faith of Paul's. And uh, Really, that's the only time uh, Paul ever used that was for Timothy and for Titus, two pastors that he poured into, uh, but what I want you to know is that Timothy was a key man in Paul's life. He was a protege, uh, and he had been with Paul for 20 years at this point and really was a product of discipleship. You know, we want to grow people up. We want to bring people along in our journey. We want you to be different today, or I'm sorry, in a, in a year from now from than when you were today. And that's the part of discipleship. It's the hard work. Well, Paul, he had lived that out with, uh, first, with Timothy. And, uh, and it's important for us to have this perspective um, about who is receiving this letter. As far as the timeline, uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, and Timothy is pastoring the church in Ephesus. And, uh, and Ephesus was a great city, no doubt, uh, but at the time that Timothy is receiving this letter, the city actually was in economic decline and uh, was actually... It had uh, quite a few problems around its economic structure. Uh, there was a severe drought. The, uh, the rivers were uh, sinking. Their ports were not being able to be used. Uh, there were a lot of problems in Ephesus. And, uh, and what's interesting about this is that, um, is that Paul is writing uh, in this circumstance. And I think about our economic situation in the, in the states today, in the, in the United States of America and you know we look at where we are, and many people believe, hey, we're we're prospering, things are are do- doing well, uh, but it's really kind of uh, very fragile, and uh, our economy especially. And so there's a lot that we'll be able to glean from that. First Timothy was written after the book of Acts was complete, which is important for you to understand. Acts ends with Paul in prison in chapter 28, and then after Acts, Paul is released. For a short time, and Paul he goes and visits the different churches that he had pastored and had poured into, and one of the visits is Ephesus. All right, and so that's kind of the timeline. He visits to see how things are going, he addresses some troubled elders, some heretics among the leaders, he deals with some of those things. We see that in chapter 1, verse 20, uh, which we'll see here in a minute, and then Paul travels to Macedonia, verse 3 of chapter 1, and Timothy stays in Ephesus again. So Paul had spent three years, he was in prison, he comes back to view, and now he's going on to Macedonia, and that is when Paul writes 1 Timothy. Then Paul, shortly after that, writes Titus in the same timeline, and then Paul's imprisoned again and writes 2 Timothy from prison, And many of you know this, but it's interesting to kind of study. And ultimately, it's in that imprisonment that the Lord would take Paul's life. And you say, well, why is that important? And that the reason I kind of bring up that timeline is because First and Second Timothy in particular were written at the end of Paul's life, at the end of his journey, at the end of his ministry. And he writes these three pastoral epistles. And arguably, it's some of his best work. It, the, where the wisdom comes through, it's his final words. And the passion of everything that Paul wants to see the church to be is seen in these epistles. Everything that Christ died for. Paul is trying to strengthen Timothy's resolve and to encourage him along the way. And the first thing that he approaches after a, first, uh, a, a short greeting in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul tackles false teachers, false prophecy within the, within the church at Ephesus. And it's interesting, and I'm going to kind of set up today by starting in Acts chapter 20. In fact, I want you to turn there with me, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 talks about Paul, the first time after he'd been with Ephesus for three years, he's saying his goodbyes, and in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, uh, we'll start reading there. It says this, it says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he's leaving Ephesus now, he's heading on to uh, onto Jerusalem, and he's saying, okay, look, you've got to keep your eyes open. And he says, be shepherds of the church of God, which, brought, which, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, listen, this is important, He could already sense it within the church at Ephesus. He says, I know after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. False teachers will come in and tear open what God has done and what God is doing. It doesn't matter what kind of foundation we have set over the last three years, is what Paul is saying in Ephesus. He says, be careful, be watchful, because savage wolves will attack. And that's exactly what happened uh, at that point. Paul is saying goodbye to Ephesus, and after three years of teaching, he says, look, there will be people that will twist doctrine. And by the way, I believe that every church will face false teaching, false doctrine at some point or another, The warning is clear throughout the New Testament that no matter what kind of foundation you think you might have, there is a threat of false doctrine to seep in. And it's not just for gullible people. It's not for those that that are easily convinced and don't, don't know. But people who don't question or judge what is being taught Uh, it is very, very important that you realize that false teachers can sneak in. Now, I believe that it's healthy to question what you hear. And even here at the Gateway Church, from this pulpit, from my mouth, that uh, if you hear something that you have never heard before, it's your responsibility to search out Scripture. Scripture to be questioning. It's not a lack of faith to question. It's not the unloving thing to do, which some people say, well, I would hate to you know, cause anybody uh, you know, any grief by questioning what was said. I'll just, I'll just accept it, or it's not that big a deal. No, Acts 17, verse 11, what the Berean church, they were commended because they searched the scriptures to see what was being taught, if it was true. And so I want to encourage you that even through this series, to go to the Word, to study it in context, and to be on guard. And, uh, and I would just be the first one to say, and hopefully all of us would have this attitude, that uh, I have not arrived. I have not, uh, I, and please do not put me on a pedestal. If I say something that is not true, I want to know about it, not while I'm speaking, But afterwards, come to me, and I want to know. And uh, and one of the reasons why we're highlighting expository preaching, kind of preaching through a book, is because it helps detect falsehood. And uh, and so we we know that that's so super super important. And one more thought, and then we're going to read our text this morning. I promise we'll get there. Uh, One more thought is that, uh, and this is uh, somewhat tragic. uh, I was with a group of pastors, uh, actually at Marilyn Pales uh, Viewing, and a group of us were together. And uh, one of the pastors there, I won't say who it was, uh, many of you know him, uh, he, he commented on something that I r- was remembering this week. He said that most congregants do not read and don't check up on what is being taught or preached. And, uh, and I thought about that for a minute. And I, I, I wonder if that's true even here, that how many of you really search the Scripture and go a little deeper? I suspect that in the church at large, and maybe not everywhere here. I know there are some that dig a little deeper, that really, really are, are careful uh, and to check up. But uh, I believe there are many, many believers that are ignorant of Scripture, overall. And uh, and that's why we want to bring God's word week in and week out. Uh, Walter Martin, a commentator, said this: that the average Jehovah's Witness can take apart a Christian in 30 minutes. And you say, well, why is that? Because a Christian, they really don't know what they believe. And whether that's true or not, I believe that there's the sense behind that is very important. That you have got to know what you believe, and why you believe, and where you can find that proof. And so I say, with the Lord's help, let us make sure at the Gateway Church that the Word is taught accurately and systematically, and that Paul's heart and my heart as your pastor would be burdened for Christ followers and for those that are seeking Christ to be challenged and not be led astray. Amen? Amen. All right, well, with that, let's turn to First Timothy chapter 1, and I'm going to ask that you stand. We're going to read God's Word together. We're going to honor God's Word in that way, and uh, let's, let's, uh, let's read this. It says in 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, so we got already, who wrote it and who it's going to? To Timothy, my true son in the faith. And there's actually quite a bit just in that little verse. Uh, commentators talk quite a bit about that. I chose not to study out about that, but you could dig a little deeper there on your own if you want. Very interesting topic. It says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And then verse 3. It says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may Uh, command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversy rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love. Everyone say love. love. Which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and the rebels. And by the way, that's for us. And I'll explain that a little later. And then it goes on to say, for the ungodly and sinful. Who's sinful here? Everybody. That's us, right? Right the unholy, the irreligious, for those uh, who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverters, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Let's pray. Lord, as we begin a new chapter in the history of the church here at the Gateway Church, I pray that you would help us to learn your word, to digest it, to, uh, to let it transform us, that it would make a difference. God, I pray that we would be stronger because of, these, uh, because of this book and because of these books that we'll be studying. God, I pray that your hand would be upon our hearts and that we'd have open hearts to receive. I pray against any distraction, God, Lord, even this morning, that may, uh, may s- uh, slip in, but Lord, that our hearts will be in tune to what you have for us today. Lord, we give you the praise and all the glory for it, and we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You can be seated in this morning. In those first... Th- 11 verses, really verses 3 through 11, there are three key ideas with false teachers. We're going to see this morning that they are in error, that we're going to see what their goal, what their motive is, and we're going to see what the effect is. And as we study this, uh, verses 3 through 11 in particular, my prayer is that we would be drawn to the scripture. That we would be more than ever drawn to God's word in our own lives to avoid error, to understand the goal of proper teaching, and to understand that the effect of negative or bad doctrine is so bad that we would, at all costs, that we would make it a point in our own lives to to uh, to make a, a decision. To, be, to have sound doctrine and godly living in our own lives. And that brings us to the first thing the error of false teachers. As Paul begins to deal with false teachers here in the scripture, He first starts with an exhortation to Timothy, and and, uh, before we talk about the error, I want you to know that most commentators believe that Timothy had a rough go. After Paul left, after three years in Ephesus, he said, Timothy, you're in charge, and it was not easy for Timothy. Timothy. Uh, Timothy was looking for another position he's 35 years old and despite his youth he is feeling inadequate when he receives this letter he's saying is it worth it and why am I here there's too many things going on can I make it that's the feeling and in verse 3 Paul says look I want you Timothy to stay In verse 20, he says, look, I've already took care of some of the error, and there will be more of it in in regards to false teaching. But he says, among them are Hermonius and Alexandria, who I handed over to Satan. He says, look, I have dealt with some of the, the bad doctrine already. But Timothy, you must continue to deal with false teachers for the safety and for the health of Ephesus church. And Paul says, I need you to stay. You are my representative. You're the choice. It reminds me as I was studying this and looking at this a few years back, I remember calling my mentor, Pastor Brown in Dayton, Ohio, and we were experiencing some trouble here. And and, uh, Jessica and I were saying, why would anyone want to do this? It was painful. There was a lot of turmoil. And some of you have tracked through that season with us. This goes back several years. And I remember thinking, Lord, why would you have us to do this? And I remember Pastor Brown, he says, it's because you're called. It's because God has a plan for you there. And it kind of refocused me. And I think that's what Paul was doing for Timothy here as well. He's saying, look, I need you there. And so in verse 3, he gives Timothy some authority to command, not just to suggest, but to command certain leaders to not teach any longer a young pastor he's got elders around him most likely older than he and he's in but paul is saying look there are people there that are not going to be healthy for the health overall of the church, and certain leaders must not teach any longer. It was most likely a small group as far as numbers, but these were leaders, they were elders, they were teachers. These were people with authority and with power within the church at Ephesus. And you say, well, what in the world were they teaching? Well, it's not clear uh, specifically, but In commentaries, what they call the teaching is heterodoctrine. Heterodoctrine is a doctrine that was different from Paul's. It was a new revelation. And by the way, uh, that is a warning that if you ever wonder when you hear someone speak, how did they get something out of a certain verse I want you that you've never heard before, especially if you've been in the church, be very careful. We get some sense of it when you look at the whole picture. In chapter 4, they were forbidding people to get married within the church. They were encouraging people to abstain from food for spiritual uh, benefit. They They were encouraging people to seek out secret interpretations of Scripture and the Old Testament law. In chapter one, verse four, which we read, they were looking uh, uh, looking after myths or genealogies. In other words, they were arguing over family trees, and they were spending a lot of time doing that. They were discussing Old Testament law and issues, and there were arguments, and they were uh, they were conceited. There was constant friction. In the bottom line, all these controversies all of this negative or all this bad doctrine was sidetracking the gospel message. In my lifetime, in the 39 years that I've been living, I've seen false teachers in, in, in ways that, uh, in, in regards to those uh, over the years, uh, some examples are like when the positive confession folks came out in the, uh, in the 80s, or the kingdom now in the early 90s, or the dominion theology, or uh, even before that, uh, in the late 70s when I was first born, uh, my parents talk about a time when the ultra-faith movement was, was moving forward, and my dad and I have talked about that at length, uh, that there was a time when they left their church because uh, of a, a difference that my parents stopped taking any medication. They, they were just all faith, and my dad regrets that. There was, there was some, some uh, misteaching in that time frame. There's been other things that I've seen, spiritual warfare that is misdirected, where people are going after talking to Satan or different things, uh, giving Satan way more authority than he deserves. In Ephesus, many of these leaders were changing, they were twisting, perverting the whole nature of Christian truth, and the same thing happens today. Today in our culture, 2015, there's a contemporary gospel. You may have heard it, it's called a social gospel, where teachers are teaching fairy tales. There's twisting the word of God again. After the uh, uh, most recent. Uh, Supreme Court decision with the, in regards to homosexual uh, you know, behavior and uh, marrying. Um, there was a, a pastor in our community that wrote a series of articles out of Grand Haven area uh, talking about the homosexual lifestyle and taking Scripture out of context. And it's in print in the newspaper. I don't know if you saw that early, uh, late June, early July. Well, there were a group of pastors that got together, and I was part of that group, and I haven't mentioned this because we wanted it to be somewhat subtle, but we wanted to give a rebuttal to that, and we did just a couple weeks ago in the paper, and uh, and it was really, I believe, a God-honoring picture of Scripture, but listen, false teachers will sneak in to our culture, into our churches, if we are not careful, teaching man's ideas, Passing off truth in Ephesus, ultimately, they were mishandling the word. And today, the same thing can happen. And Paul's saying, this must be stopped. And he's giving a young pastor the authority to say, look, you need to deal with the elders that are misusing God's word. A very, very strong word to start this letter. The second thing we see in this, in this text is the goal or the motive of the false teacher. So not only do we see the error, but I want you to know it says here in Scripture that the proper goal of teaching is to teach with a pure heart, a good conscience, and with a sincere faith. We may not always get it right, but our goal should be motivated by love. Love is the foundation of all Christianity. How many agree? I mean, God's Word is clear about that. But with false teachers, what's the goal? What's the motive? It's certainly not love. It's not being concerned with love for one another. But false teachers are actors. They have an impure heart. They have a guilty conscience and a hypocritical faith. And many times, it's all about ego stroking. And ultimately, It's about the money. We see that in chapter 6, and we'll look at that a little later. But turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. This is an interesting uh, section of Scripture. It says um, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and 16, it says, watch out for false prophets, for for false teachers. They come to you in sheep's clothing. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean they're, you know, Uh, look like sheep that means that they're they're wearing wool most likely which was the priestly garment Uh, so they look like pastors or they look like teachers but inwardly they are ferocious wolves this is jesus saying look you've got to be careful who you are listening to who you are allowing to speak into your life because the next phrase is so important. By their fruit, you will recognize them. By their fruit. In Ephesus, they were missing the mark, and what they were saying was amounting to nothing. There was no effect, no fruitfulness. And it's possible. I do believe that people can be in error, without, and it can be innocent, and I, I get that. And certainly, we want to be humble And when we, anybody that teaches to do that. But in Ephesus, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it says there, there was among the teachers there a strong desire to be seen as teachers of the law. It wasn't about what they were teaching. It was more that they were the ones communicating. They liked the limelight, so to speak. These teachers were not concerned with the truth and orthodoxy. They just wanted to be noticed. And then in chapter 6, verse 5, in fact, turn with me there uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5. It says this. It says, uh, there's constant friction between men and a an corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth, and they do this that who think that godliness is a means of to financial gain. They were motivated by money. And I would say that this is a huge warning sign that if any preacher or any teacher is, if they're continually uh, looking for financial gain, it's a huge key to detect false teachers because it gets at their motive and what's the goal behind it in Titus chapter 1 verse 11 you could turn there uh, just one more uh, one more uh, uh, book over Titus chapter 1 verse 11 look what it says it says that these false teachers they must be silenced verse 11 because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. The reason they were teaching was because they wanted to fill their pockets with gold and silver and, the, and things of the like. And so we see the, the motive, the goal behind a false teacher is corrupt. So we see the effect, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the error, we see the goal behind it. The third thing is the effect or the result of false teachers. And this is what's tragic. It just said there in that verse, in verse, uh, chapter uh, 1 of Titus, verse 11, that it's corrupting households. We know that's true. And when false teachers get a hold, it's tragic. In verse 7, it says that they didn't have a clue. They were in left field. It may sound believable, but they're ignorant. Uh, it, church, good doctrine will make us, it will lead us to a life of holiness, just like good hygiene. We clean up, we wash our hair, we brush our teeth, uh, we put on deodorant. It's good hygiene, it helps us. Good doctrine helps us in those ways. I want to pause and say Connect 101 is where we go through our core beliefs as a church. That's why we do that. That's why it's so important that we we know where we stand and that we can be in unity. But the effect of false teachers, of that bad doctrine, it brings death and sickness and decay from a spiritual sense. It breathes just a, a, a decay over a congregation when false teachers are allowed to share. Paul knew this. And so what he does in the next few verses is he defends the law, which they were mistreating. There was a lot of Old Testament Jewish thought. They're going back and they're and they, they were uh, basically most commentators believe part of the, the bad doctrine was saying that the law is what would save them. They're turning back to the Jewish ways and say, and Paul saying, Look, the law is good. It's good for recognizing our need for a savior though it's not good for saving it's not on its own good the law is not for salvation the law alone is not good news and Paul identifies this and he says it's not gospel and he, but he says look the law is what recognizes our sin and and then we stand in need of a savior ultimately we must be on our guard, church, with false teachers. That's the big point here. And then as far as what is the effect, what, is, uh, you know, what does that look like? You can look at their followers and say, what do their followers look like, a false teacher? What, you look at their teaching specifically and you pray for discernment. Are they prideful? Are they arrogant? Do they encourage you? to search the scriptures, and all those things will be warning signs of the effect of what a false teacher potentially can do. I want to wrap up with asking you a question. What do we need to look for in teachers or preachers or when we're flipping through Christian radio or Christian television or we're reading Christian television paraphernalia or a Christian book, what do we need to look for? The first thing is we must, and again, this is so important, we must have an understanding of Scripture. The gospel message must be focused and it must stay at the front. And then there are principles of interpretation that must be administered within a congregation, within any teaching format. You cannot just pick one verse here and one verse here and put them together without good, proper uh, interpretation of Scripture. And and you've got to ask the question, do teachers make the Word say things that the Word does not really say? And I've seen it, and my guess is you've seen it, the second thing I want to say is when you look at different areas in our lives where teachers are being publicized or you know, radio, TV, in print, or even in pulpits, what is the personality and what's the motivation behind that? It cannot be ego-driven. And then the question is, as far as the personality, is there an emphasis on salvation? Or is the goal just a good offering or to promote self or materialism in any sort of way? You need to look for humility or are they arrogant in their presentation? And is the teaching ultimately producing saints, producing Christ followers, moving people along the discipleship journey? The bottom line, do followers understand the law and put the law with Jesus Christ, our Savior, our way, according to Scripture, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the fact is, we will all face potential corrupt doctrine, and it can slip into godless living in all of our lives. And Paul's encouragement to Timothy at this early stage of the book, is, or rather this letter, is Timothy, stay put and address the, the wrong doctrine. Teach sound doctrine, Timothy. Deal with the false teachers. And Timothy, by all means, be a living example. And with that, I want to pray for us and ask the Lord to help us to understand these few scriptures today. Lord, we just come before you today. As we're just scratching the surface of this this incredible letter, I pray that it would begin to burn in our hearts a desire to know your word and to act it out, to live it out. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us that there would be an incredible sense that, Lord, that you are teaching us through your word over this next season and that it would strengthen us, it would gird us up, that it would cause us to live godly lives and that we would be more aware and better discerners when there is false doctrine. Lord, we thank you for this. We pray it in Jesus' name.